So here we are today uh, looking at Mark's gospel once again, and uh, we're, we're not going to be taking all the verses that we just read together today, but we're, we're going to look more specifically at verses 27 through 33, and we're going to come back. This passage here is such a key passage. We're going to come back to it probably a couple of more times before we get through it. This is, we're, we're kind of like at the halfway point through uh, Mark's gospel here. And so we want to drill down into the things that are stated here. So verses 27 to 33, that'll be our focus. Let me just read them uh, once again really quickly, and then we'll consider it. So now Jesus and his disciples went out of the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So we are now at this crucial turning point in the ministry of Jesus. And, and just as Jesus, remember uh, in our last teaching, we looked at how Jesus brought healing to that man uh, who was blind. And we saw how, how it was a gradual uh, healing for the blind man. At, at this point, Jesus is now going to begin to gradually open the spiritual eyes of the disciples and give them the correct understanding of who he is and um, a correct understanding of, of the Messiah because they had a wrong view of the Messiah. All, all Jews were looking for the Messiah. They were waiting for the Messiah. But as we're going to see, they just had the wrong uh, picture of what the Messiah would look like. And so here at this particular moment in the ministry of Jesus, some have called it the watershed moment. And it's because now uh, his, identify, his identity is clarified and his mission is also um, more or less laid out for them. So the first part of, of Mark's gospel up until this point Jesus has been revealing his identity, but it hasn't yet become totally clear to them just exactly who he is. They're, they're still not 100% sure. I mean, obviously they know Jesus is from God. They know, you know, he's a prophet. They, but, but you remember the, for, for example, in the, um, the story of the storm on the sea, when Jesus calms the sea, remember what they say afterward? They said, who can this man be? So, so they haven't yet fully understood who he is. Here's that moment where all um, mystery about his identity is cleared up. 
and he affirms that yes, indeed, uh, he is just who Peter announces him to be. So um, this this kind of brings the first part of the gospel to a conclusion. Now Jesus is clearly identified, and and then the second part has to do with the mission, has to do with just exactly what the Messiah is going to do, and that has to do with his death and resurrection. So uh, today we want to look at both the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus, or to put it another way, we want to look at the Messiah, who he is, and what he came to do. And so the passage that we read, a few things just real quickly to, to get the the context of where all of this transpired. We read there that it was in the area of Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus takes them uh, away to this place. Now this is up in the northern part of the land of Israel at the base of Mount Hermon. And this place, Caesarea Philippi, today if you go to Israel, uh, the place is known as Banyas. And... Um, it's, it's known as Banyas because the Arabs have given it that name. Its ancient name was Panyas. And it was called Panyas because it was an area where there was a temple to the god Pan. And in Arabic, there's no P sound, so they say Banyas. And um, if you go to Israel today, that's part of the tour. You go to Banyas and you go to the place where this um, whole conversation uh, took place. Uh, Undoubtedly, this is where the conversation took place because in Matthew's account, which is a little broader, a little more full, Matthew tells us that uh, Jesus says to Peter, uh, whose name, by the way, means rock or stone, uh, he says to Peter, after Peter makes his confession, he says, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, that's super significant if you go to the location because right there, um, the, that ancient spot where those idolatrous temples were, in the backdrop of it is a massive rock mountain. And the, the mountain looks a bit like El Capitan in Yosemite. It's much smaller than El Capitan, but it's that sort of thing. You know, if you look at El Capitan, it's just this gigantic rock face. And that's uh, what this backdrop looks like as well. So Jesus takes advantage of the opportunity right there. He's in the, the a center of paganism and he's affirming that, yes, he is the Christ. He is the one who has authority over all principality and power And upon this confession uh, that Jesus is the Christ, upon this rock of of him being the Messiah, uh, the church would be built. And so that's the the background for the story that we have here. Now, there's questions that Jesus asks. The first one is, as we see, who do... People say that I am. So that, that's the first question. Who do people say that I am? Notice that Jesus didn't ask uh, what people thought about what he said or did. 
No, this is a very specific question about who he is, about his identity. And in those days, people were saying things about him. Uh, Some said that maybe he was John the Baptist. Uh, Herod even thought that. Herod thought that John the Baptist was raised from the dead and and that Jesus was a, a resurrected version of John the Baptist. Some said he was John the Baptist. Some thought maybe he was Elijah because the prophets had declared that before the coming of the Lord, the Elijah would come. So they thought, well, maybe he's Elijah. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, Jeremiah's name is included in there. Some thought he was Jeremiah. And then they just thought, well, maybe he's one of the prophets. So the point is, the things that they said about him were, were good. I mean, they recognized him as a spiritual authority of some sort, but they they missed who he really was. And, you know, that same kind of thing happens today as well. There, there are people today who are happy to um, consider Jesus in a, a rather positive light spiritually, but nevertheless would not want to give him the, the position that he claims for himself. So there, there are still people today, plenty of people today, who would say uh, about Jesus that he was, uh, for example, that he was a great moral teacher. There are people that will say that today. And there are people today that would say, as a matter of fact, one uh, person did literally say this, that Jesus was the greatest religious genius that ever lived. Others have said he's a wise man. Uh, Some have said he's a prophet. Um, Someone even said that he was the first socialist. And from from their perspective, that was great. Jesus was a socialist. Um, But you know, these very same people who would be willing to say those kinds of things about him, where they're in a sense affirming that, yes, well, Jesus was an important spiritual leader in history. They would at the same time, adamantly deny Jesus' own claim for who he was. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his um, book, Mere Christianity, he addresses this very thing. And let, let me read to you what he said. He said, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Here's what they say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him as God. That is the one thing, Lewis says, we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So for those who think that they're being very generous. Well, sure, Jesus was a great moral teacher or, well, Jesus was a prophet. 
No, what they're actually doing is they're detracting from who Jesus claimed to be. So that, that, that was what was in the air in those days. So now Jesus turns specifically to them and he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And here, Peter really shines. Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, again, this, this is an amazing statement on the part of Peter when you consider the, the background that, that Peter himself and the other disciples had. Now, like I said initially, all of the Jews were waiting for the Messiah. But Jesus was not fitting the, the picture of what the Messiah would be like in the mind of every single Jew. So the Messiah is, uh, he's the savior. And mainly they saw him as a political military type of a, of a figure. That what the Messiah was primarily going to do is he was going to conquer those who were oppressing Israel and he was going to take and elevate Israel to a place of, of world dominion. That was the, the Jewish messianic hope. So now when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, he is completely breaking out of the mindset of, of the day. And he's attributing now to Jesus, who doesn't have any of those outward marks of being a great political or military figure, Peter's saying, no, you are the Christ. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells him this. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven revealed it to you. So Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you know that because God revealed that to you. You see, Peter would not have naturally been able to draw that conclusion because of the background. Now, again, just really quickly with the, the whole idea of the Christ, that's the Greek version of the Messiah. And in Old Testament life, you had these people that were designated as the anointed ones. So uh, the prophets were anointed, the priests were anointed, the kings were anointed. And that signified somebody whose um, God's hand was up upon those people. And so what happened over time is there began to be this realization that this whole idea of, of somebody being anointed, this was going to culminate in one person. There would one day be not just a Messiah among many, but there would be the Messiah. And the Messiah would be the anointed one, the one that God specifically commissioned to come into the world and to put everything right that's been wrong. But, of course, in the context for Peter and them, the, the, the real focal point would be Israel. And the rest of the world would benefit from it, but it, it was more specifically about Israel. And so there was this tremendous expectation at the time of the apostles. There, there had already been, uh, during the lifetime of Jesus and, and slightly before, many people who had come along and made the claim to be the Messiah. And they always sort of fit the bill of being a, mil a military type of a person, going to overthrow the, 
oppressive powers, going to set up a kingdom. They, they failed. They were wiped out. But now Jesus comes on to the scene. And again, he doesn't, he doesn't fit into that picture, but Jesus obviously is very much different because he has this amazing spiritual authority and power that nobody's ever seen before. And so when he asked the question, Peter says, you are the Christ. And that was the right answer. But now here's where it gets really interesting. So Peter gives the right answer. You are the Messiah. And now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to begin a process of educating them about who the Messiah really is and what the mission of the Messiah actually is versus what they had thought versus their, their wrong understanding. And so as we pick up in verse 31, notice what it says. And so, you know, upon that declaration by Peter, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. It says, and he began to teach them that the son of man, that's a messianic term we'll come back to in a minute, that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priest and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So put yourself in the place of these guys right now. Because all the way along, you know, they're seeing all of these amazing things with Jesus. He speaks with authority. Nobody's ever spoken like him. He has power over demons. He can give a word and heal the sick and raise the dead. He can do all of these things. And in their minds, they're like, you know, I don't know who he is, but he's somebody special. Obviously, he's great. And we're, we're still not quite sure. But now this moment, it's like, you're the Messiah. Yes, I'm the Messiah. He's the Messiah. They would have just been looking at it and said, this is it. The Messiah is here. And now everything that we have hoped and dreamed for, this long-awaited deliverer for Israel has now come and the kingdom's gonna come and the Romans are gonna be out and we're gonna be in and it's all gonna be great. And Jesus says, no, that's not quite it. Let me tell you what it's actually going to be. Yes, there is going to be a messianic kingdom, but it's not going to come the way you think it's going to come. Rather, the, the son of man must suffer and be betrayed, rejected, and must die. I mean, this was like, what? No, 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 no. This, this, this cannot happen. And so Peter, understandably, he comes back and he just says, um, he takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. <laughs> I mean, think, think about this, you know. Oh, Jesus, no, 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 no. Okay, let, let me tell you what the Messiah is gonna do. You know, what do you, what do you mean dying and rejection? And what, what are you talking about, Jesus? This is Peter's doing. He's rebuking Jesus. And notice what happens next. It says, but when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, Jesus, he rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. 
So you see, this is the problem. Peter, he's thinking of the Messiah just in human terms. He's, he's seeing things only through the, the lens of fallen, sinful humanity. He's seen the Messiah only through the lens of what is going to be beneficial and helpful for himself and his people, Israel. He doesn't see the, the whole picture at all. And so Jesus rebukes him and he says, get behind me, Satan. Why Satan? Why does he say that? Because in the words of Peter, the voice of the devil was, was being echoed. Because maybe you remember earlier, Jesus went out into the wilderness and he had a confrontation with Satan. And if you read that in, in Matthew chapter four or Luke uh, chapter four there, what you find is that there's a certain point where Satan says to Jesus, now remember, Jesus has come to redeem the world. That's his mission as the Messiah, right? And there's a certain point where Satan says to him, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything. In other words, what Satan was saying is, you don't need to go to that cross. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to die. You don't need to go that route. I will give you everything. All the kingdoms of the world, they belong to me. They've been delivered to me. And I will give them to you if you will simply bow down and worship me. And remember there, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord and him only shall you serve. But you see, when Peter says to Jesus, not so, Lord, no way, this isn't going to happen to you. This is not the messianic path. As we all know, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It's that same suggestion that you can have all of this and you don't have to do it God's way. There's a shortcut. I'll give it to you if you bow down and worship me. And so Jesus rebukes Peter and notice here, it says that he turned around and he looked at his disciples. Peter was just the, the spokesman for everybody. Everybody felt the same way. It, it wasn't just Peter. Everybody, everybody had the same understanding. Everybody had the same expectation of the Messiah. So when Jesus looks at them all, basically he's saying, listen, this is the reality. I'm going to tell you right now what, what the Messiah is about. So Peter, again, to just clarify, Peter didn't want a suffering Messiah. He wanted a Messiah that would kick out the Romans and restore the kingdom to Israel like it was during David's time. That was the picture. David was, you know, the, the Messiah was the son of David. He was going to reestablish the Davidic rule. And so he wanted a Messiah that would solve the political, social, and economic problems of the day. Um, Peter, at this point, is just like everybody else. He doesn't understand the nature of the problem. See, for, for the Jews, they thought the problem was the Romans. The Romans were not the problem. Sin was the problem. Satan behind the scenes was the problem. Death itself was the problem. And the Romans were just a symptom of the, the real problem. Jesus is here to deal with the real problem. You know, nothing's changed. That, that's the world we live in today. Everybody, everybody thinks the problem... Um, 
is political, the problem is social, the problem is economic, and if we can just get these things sorted out, if we can just get the right people in power, if we can just get the right social structure, if we can just get the right economic um, understanding and application, it's going to fix everything. That's the utopian mindset. We can bring about a kingdom. And even back in those days, and still today, people think in terms of a messianic age. You know, people will talk about that today. And what's a messianic age? It's the age of peace and prosperity, and, and it's going to come, and, and we're going to bring it in. And we're going to do away with these things, and, and this is how we're going to do it. We're going to overthrow these people, and we're going to kick these guys out, and we're going to get ourselves in, and then we're going to really bring about utopia. We're going to bring about the messianic age. That's what they thought then. That's what people think today. But of course, all of this is, it's just not reality. The problem is not primarily a material problem. It's a spiritual problem. The problems in the world are due to sin and the fact that mankind has joined in the cosmic rebellion against the creator of the universe, that's the problem. And Peter couldn't see that. So Peter's thinking just like people typically think, but he's also thinking like the devil thinks. No need to suffer. No need to do any of this. Basically, no need to do it God's way. We can do it ourselves. That's the essence of human rebellion. We don't need God. We don't need God to tell us what to do. We can do it ourselves. We can figure it out ourselves. Now, they were right about the big picture plan. Yes, there is going to be a messianic age. They were right about that. They were just wrong about how it was going to be initiated and how it was going to ultimately be realized. That's what they were wrong about. So Jesus, and I want you to go back with me to verse 31. Jesus in verse 31, he starts off his instruction by really, you know, giving them, first of all, a word of encouragement. And the way he does that is by using this one little phrase concerning himself, the son of man. Now, what does that mean? Now, if you read the Gospels, you'll find Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man more than he referred to himself, himself as the Son of God, even though he did both. But most of the time, he referred to himself as the Son of Man. People ask me all the time, why did Jesus use that term, Son of Man? What does that mean? Well, there's two different meanings in Scripture. Uh, sometimes in Scripture, it just is a way of saying, it's just talking about a person, a human being. Like Ezekiel is often called a Son of Man. And you, son of man, says the Lord. And he's speaking to Ezekiel. It's just a, uh, a way of referring to his humanity. But there is a passage in Daniel chapter 7 where the Messiah is declared to be the son of man. And that's the way Jesus used it regarding himself. He is the son of man. He is, the, he is that messianic figure. And so he says to them, he began to teach them that 
the son of man. So he wants them to know, yes, you're you're partially right, the son of man. And in their minds, that would take them back to that great passage in Daniel that speaks of the ultimate kingdom, universal kingdom that the Messiah would establish. Let me read it to you from Daniel chapter seven. Says this, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like, here it is, the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He, the son of man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom, the one that will never be destroyed. Yes, that's it. You're right. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And now let me tell you about the Son of Man. So in their mind, Son of Man, right, that's it. That's the picture. But Jesus says, but we're not going to get there the way you think. Yes, we're going to get there. That revelation in Daniel is going to be realized. That, that is going to happen. But it's going to happen through a process that they had not even imagined. And he goes on to say, that the Son of Man, and I want you to notice this one little word, must. We're going to come back to this next week and and look at this. I was trying to fit all of this into my message, and at like 1230 last night, I realized I'm trying to to put three messages into one. So uh, forget that. We're going to come back and look at this. But I want to touch on it right now. But, But notice that imperative. The Son of Man must. He must. It is absolutely necessary. And we'll come back and look at why. But what must he do? Well, he must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. He must be killed. And now here's the twist on it. And the third day, he must rise again. So you see, They were right about who Jesus was and they were right about what he would ultimately do. They just did not understand that the process was gonna be entirely different than they ever imagined. It wasn't going to be like they thought. It wasn't going to be the Messiah riding in on a white stallion with the armies behind him and overthrowing the oppressive Romans. That's not how it was going to work. No, he was going to do battle against forces that were much more formidable than the Romans. He was going to battle the devil and the demons and sin and death itself. And you see, that's what Christ did. He dealt with the root of the problem. You see, even to this very day, all of the efforts by by people to fix the world are basically just trying to deal with the symptoms. 
All of the problems in the world today are symptoms of something else. That's why they, they never go away. You know, they, they never go away. You, you, for a while, you think we, we've got this dealt with, we've got this covered. You know, how many times have we heard the, this idea that, you know, in, in our day, there's going to be peace? And it's like no sooner does somebody say that than a war breaks out somewhere. You know, it's like if you're, if you have a lawn and you, you notice in your lawn that you've got patches of weeds and, and you know, they don't, they don't fit in there. They're not supposed to be there. And so you decide, okay, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to get my lawnmower and I'm going to go out and I'm going to cut those weeds down. And you are going to do that. And then for just a brief amount of time, you can look out at your backyard and it's like, all right, dealt with a problem. No more weeds. I don't see any more weeds. And no little flowers sprouting up and things. It's just all nice green grass. But you know what? Give it enough time and guess what? Those are gonna come right back. Why? Because the root is still there. The only way that's gonna change is if you get out there you know, and dig your fingers down or get your little shovel or fork or whatever you're gonna use. You gotta go down and you gotta get that thing out by the root. That's the only way you're gonna rid your garden or your lawn of weeds And that is the same kind of picture of the weeds of sin that just continue to grow and and blossom amongst human beings. Oh, we have these temporary fixes. We have these moments where we've got all of this taken care of now. It's all under control. And then before you know it, something else is cropping up again. That's what happens when you only deal with symptoms. The root has to be pulled out. And that is what Jesus did. He got to the root of the problem. The problem is sin. And he came and he dealt with sin. The problem is Satan. These these powerful spirits that are working and manipulating and controlling from behind the scenes. You know, there, the, the thing is, and we'll try to develop this more next time, but, you know, there's, there, the link between Satan and human beings is sin. See, human beings were deceived by the devil into joining his rebellion. And so there's this thing that ties us to the devil. It's called sin. That's the chain that binds us to him. And his control over our lives. So what does Jesus do? He comes and he he deals with that. He deals with sin itself. He breaks that link between us and the devil. He sets us free. And so we can now go on to flourish and and to be blessed and to prosper uh, spiritually because of what he's done. But that's what we have to remember. Now, the great news is that he's going to do it on a universal scale in the future, just like the prophecy said, the son of man to him, dominion is going to be given over all people, all nations, all languages. Everybody is going to come under his authority ultimately. But presently, it really comes down to um, the individual lordship of Jesus over 
individual people. Now, one other thing here in verse 31. So he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed, but he's going to rise. And the resurrection is going to be the proof that the plan has been initiated. The kingdom has been inaugurated. And and one day the son of man will receive the fullness of the kingdom that the ancient of days promised to him. And it's through the cross that all of this was accomplished. As Paul writes to the Colossians, he says that it was through the cross that Jesus displayed his victory over the principalities and the powers. Those terms are references to the the invisible spirits that control the world. It was the cross, uh, it was on the cross that Jesus defeated them. And his being lifted up on the cross was the the public notice that he had won the victory and it was confirmed through the resurrection. So as we close, here's what we need to understand. We've, We've mentioned this before, but let me just say it again. We live in the already, but not yet. So on the one hand, we need to realize, yes, Jesus is the Christ. He has come. He's the Messiah. And he has inaugurated the kingdom and individual people like us and anybody else on planet earth can now enter the kingdom in this phase that it's in through trusting the king, through bowing the knee to the king. And so we can enter the kingdom now. It's already here in one sense, but it's not here in its fullest sense. That, that is yet to come in the future. And so we live with that tension between the already and the not yet. We are part of the kingdom now, but the kingdom is not fully realized. It will be fully realized in the future. And so we have the benefit of the kingdom, but just not the full experience of the kingdom. That, that will come. And so we, we live with that future fulfillment in mind. We long for that day. And we long for more people to enter the kingdom as we await that day. Now, what this teaches us clearly, is that there is only one Messiah. There's there's only one Messiah. And and that Messiah is Jesus. All others are false and powerless to save. You know, we're we're living in a time of, um, it's like there's messianic fervor in the culture. You know, it's amazing to me to see how there's, there's so much expectation in the culture of, of some thing that's going to save, something that's going to, to, to really, you know, bring in that, that perfect world. And we have this, you know, this huge emphasis on social justice that's kind of come up in the culture. What, what is that all about? That's all about a utopia. We're going we're gonna to create a, a utopia. We're going to create a perfect world. And we're looking for, uh, I'm either looking to be someone's Messiah or I'm looking for a Messiah. 
it's funny how just kind of life and conversations come together sometimes to enhance preaching. So Cheryl was in London a couple of weeks ago and she, she was at church on Sunday morning at Reality and uh, Tim Chaddock was preaching. Tim's a pastor there. And she said Tim was uh, doing a message on, I think it was like four things that'll cause you to burn out. And, and one of them is you, if you have a messianic complex, you burn out. And Cheryl said, I realized I have a messianic complex. I, I want to save everybody. I want to fix everything. I, I, I want to make sure everybody is happy. And I said, oh, honey, you do have that. You need to get rid of that messianic complex because, you know, when, you're, when we're driving down the street, this is part of the problem. You're just so worried about how everybody's going to be offended by the way I drive and I change lanes and I can't change, I can't change lanes like that. I, I got to put on my blinker. You know, all of this stuff, you're always like harassing me. I understand now it's your messianic complex that's doing this to you and oppressing me. So I agree, stop it. Get rid of that. She's like, man, I'm just getting worn out with this, trying to, trying to fix everything. She was telling my daughter this, who was just with us. She went home to New York yesterday, and, and Kristen said, well, of course, Mom, uh, all mothers have a messianic complex because everybody wants us to fix everything for them. You know, the kids, Mom, do this for me. Mom, what about that? Mom, how come this? And, of course, the husbands want that too. So... But that, as Cheryl was telling me about how that really kind of pierced her when she was there in London listening to Tim, uh, it just led us to a conversation beyond that about, yes, this is, this is like what's happening in the culture today. And for some people, it's a person. That's a Messiah. And if it's just, you know, and if this person was in charge, then everything would be amazing. And for some people, it's an idea. For some people, it's an identity. And if I just had this identity, then that would, that, would be, that would save me. And then I would enter into this full, wonderful experience of life that's been uh, evading me. But listen, no, it won't happen. These are all false messiahs. False messiahs don't deliver. They can never deliver what they promise. They're false. There's only one messiah. And there's only one who's going to bring in the messianic age, and that's Jesus. But you know... The world is being primed for a, a false Messiah that will come. There will come a man onto the scene of the earth at some time who is going to fool everybody into thinking that he's the Messiah that's going to bring about the kingdom and he's going to bring about the greatest destruction that the planet has ever known. But that's where all false messiahs take you. They all take you down into the pit. They, you know, even if there's a temporary... Um, time of prosperity and excitement and, and look at how wonderful it is. Uh, it's short-lived. It won't last. It'll all crumble, ultimately. And let's understand that. You know, back in the history of Israel, they rejected the true Messiah. You know, the, the, the nation of Israel, there were a number of false messiahs that came, came before Jesus, false messiahs came after Jesus. But probably the most notable one in the history of Israel was a man who came in 135 AD, and he was known as Bar Koba, and that name means son of the star. And in, back in the prophecy in Numbers, there was a prophecy back there that said, uh, a star shall come out of Israel. So they named this guy the son of the star. And 
he put himself forth as, as the Messiah of Israel. Now, they had rejected Jesus many, many years earlier, many decades earlier, but now Barcoba is there. He rises up a revolt against Rome. He has coins printed. You can, have, you can see Barcoba coins even today if you go to Israel. He has coins minted, says the son of the star on the coin. He was the Messiah in the minds of many Jews at the time. And there was a short period of time where it seemed like he's going to do it. He's going to bring us liberation. He's going to bring all the promises and the blessings upon us. And the Romans killed him. And his whole effort vanished. And you know what they also did? The Romans at that point, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They completely wiped it off the, the, the earth and they changed the name. And for centuries, Jerusalem was not called Jerusalem. That, that's a lesson. That's what Barcobas will do. That's what false messiahs will do. Whether it's, like I said, a person, or it's an idea, or it's an identity, there's only one messiah. There's only one savior. There's only one who can bring in a messianic age. That's Jesus. And there's only one who can bring you into the kingdom and into righteousness, peace, and joy, and that's Jesus. So don't, don't get ripped off by a false Messiah. Don't fall for those deceptive promises that if you just follow this and do that, it's going to be amazing. No, it, it will not end well. It will only end well for those who follow and call upon Jesus, the true Messiah. And that's what Peter and the other disciples discovered that day. And even though the plan was different, they got it right. Jesus is the Messiah. And of course, they followed him, even though the plan was different. And they followed him and discovered that even though it was a different plan, it was the best plan. So you might be thinking, well, I, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't like that way. Suffering and rejection and dying. I, I don't want that in my plan. You know what? Trust me, God's plan is the best. You can't improve on it. Because remember, at the end of that, there's resurrection. And it might be more difficult and more challenging to follow Jesus, but the end of it is well worth it. So Lord, help us not to be fooled by any false messiahs. Help us to know that you are alone the true Messiah, the Savior of the world. You're the one that will bring ultimately the Messianic age. And you're the one that will bring that kingdom of peace and righteousness and joy into the hearts of individual people right now. Lord, that the kingdom is already here. And it's here for those who put their trust in you. So Lord, help us to do that today. And Lord, we thank you that we have this amazing hope 
that we have this blessed hope. Lord, that our hope is not in man, that our hope is not in this world, but our hope is in the true Messiah, the Savior of the world, the King of Israel who will come and set up that glorious eternal kingdom that we will all partake of. Thank you, Lord. Amen.